Today we read from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty, might become rich. And Jackson will tell you about the part I missed. <laughs> uh, well, good morning. Good to be back with you. We had an excellent men's retreat. McCall last weekend, we had a good group of men. And one of the things I love about that is it's an opportunity to hang out with and have conversation and with men that I don't normally get to spend much time with. So it was a great blessing. Well, for the next few weeks, we'll be talking about how we, as New Covenant believers, handle our money. And we don't talk about money a whole lot here at Cole. Uh, we only talk about it usually when we come to a passage like this that deals with money. Why is that? Why don't we give a regular sermon on giving, that kind of thing? Well, it's because we really trust that God is the provider. And we have found from year to year as we pray over the budget as elders and as leaders and we consider what God's calling us to, God always provides just what we need. But he does it through you. And so you as a church have been very generous to and responsive to the Lord when there's a need. So thank you for your part in God's provision for us as a church body. But I do believe that all of us need to grow in our understanding of how we use our money. We are taught over and over again by our culture, which is a consumer-oriented culture, that we should live for our money. We should depend on our money. I read recently that TV shows are merely a venue for selling goods. Don't know if you thought about that, but I think it's true. It's the commercials. It's the money that's behind it. They're trying to get more and more of your money. Our culture is money-driven. Our society drives into us the idea that money is the key to security and happiness. And, you know, that attitude, money is the key to security and happiness, makes sense if there is no God. But we as New Covenant believers are to live differently. 
than that. We are to live differently than the world around us in how we handle our money because that ultimately, that idea that money is the key to security and happiness, we know is a lie. That that can't provide what our hearts really long for in security and happiness. And really, all you have to do is look around at those who have a lot of money and you find that they, if they depend on it, don't find life there. From lotto winners to Justin Bieber's and others in the world who get lots of money and then can't handle it. It doesn't provide what they're looking for. Scripture teaches us that you become what you worship. That's sobering. Because if you worship money, money is cold and hard. If you worship it, depend on it for life, you will become cold and hard, Scripture teaches. I've come to believe that love of money is one of the greatest sins of our culture today. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul wrote, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in Matthew 6, Jesus said, You can't serve both God and money. All that implies that money will master you if Jesus hasn't. Money demands our allegiance. Money will master you if Jesus hasn't. And I find that for a lot of us as believers, we, we have kind of a simplistic attitude towards money, which is, okay, God, I'll give you part of it, but the rest is mine to do with what I want. Well, I want to suggest that God wants to, to expand our view of how we handle our money. He wants to, to, as new covenant believers, help us to look at our money and treat our money and deal with our money in a, a different way way to learn to handle it well, to learn what I call a radical generosity, to live out a radical generosity. This is new covenant. Now, the old covenant, the Old Testament seemed to teach that, and if you're living by the old covenant, that you better give if you want God's blessing. But the new covenant is different. The new covenant calls us to respond in a way that says that we've been so blessed by the grace of God that how can we respond with anything but a radical generosity? So today we'll be looking at that and we'll look at five reasons why we should live a life of radical generosity. So pray with me and we'll look at this text together. Father, you are a gracious God, a giving God, a God of radical generosity who sent Your Son that we might have life. Lord Jesus, You gave up Your life. You surrendered all. You became poor that we might become rich. You lived out a life of radical generosity. Holy Spirit, You're in us. You're a giving Spirit who gives us life, the very life of the Father in us. You live out a life of radical generosity. May we imitate You, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May this text teach us more what that looks like. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
First reason I see in this passage that we should live a life of radical generosity is that it demonstrates grace. It demonstrates grace. Notice what Paul writes in verse 1 of chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. What's Paul talking about here? What's this grace of God he's talking about? Well, see, for over a year, Paul has been encouraging Gentile churches as he's traveling around these churches he's established to make a collection and offering so that he could give this money to the church in Jerusalem, which is filled with Jewish believers. But the church in Jerusalem had been going through a tremendous affliction, persecution, difficulty, and as it appears, a time of famine, a time of real poverty. And so Paul's traveling and saying, look, Gentiles, you've been so blessed spiritually by the Jewish Christians. Now I encourage you to be generous in blessing your Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ, to give freely. So he had traveled among all the churches and encouraged them to give. And in particular here, he mentions the Macedonian churches. That would be the church at Philippi, the church at Thessalonica, and perhaps the church at Berea. And he says those churches have had an amazing outpouring of grace in how they've given. He calls their giving, their generosity, grace. Very interesting word he uses there to describe their generosity. Now, I appreciate the way Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to give because that's really the thrust of this passage. He's encouraging them towards a radical generosity. But notice how he does it. Uh, As you think about Groups that ask you for money. What do they depend on to get you to give? The kind of things that the world or even Christian ministries too often appeal to are things like sympathy, right? Hey, here's pictures of starving children and if you really care, you'll give. Or they appeal to things like guilt. If you don't give... What's going to happen? You, you have the opportunity to meet this need. You've got so much more than the rest of the world. How could you keep it to yourself? Look at all the starving people. And so there's often an appeal to guilt to get us to give. Sometimes there's an appeal to pride, right? You can be one of those people who give a lot. And if you give enough, we'll put your name on this plaque or on this chair, on this brick, or whatever it might be. And it's an appeal to pride to get us to give more. Sometimes there's an appeal to selfishness. A lot of the health and wealth teaching that I think is a false teaching appeals to this. If you give, God will bless you more. You'll get more if you give. Here's one of their writers says this, increase comes from the abundance of our giving. And the return on our harvest is multiplied. In other words, if you give, God's going to multiply it to you. Notice that's just an appeal to selfishness. Like my friend Paul Winslow, a pastor who received a letter that said, I guarantee you that if you send me $75, if you'll bless our ministry this way, God will triple it to you. He'll give you three times as much. 
So my friend Paul wrote them a letter and said, well, why don't you send me $75 and then you'll have three times as much. (laughs) Seems logical to me. For some reason, he never heard back. I I don't know why. (laughs) But what I love about Paul here is what he appeals to is not guilt or selfishness or any of those things as he's encouraging the Corinthians to give. He, He focuses on the grace of God. How does their giving demonstrate the grace of God, the Macedonian churches? Why is he he's so excited about the grace that's revealed as they give? Well, notice verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. He says, boy, look at the grace that's been poured out. These Macedonian churches, he said, are going through a tough time. They're in affliction. And we know from the book of Acts and from the letters to Thessalonica and to Philippi that there was tremendous persecution going on in those places. The Christians were having a tough time of it. They were under affliction. And it says, and in their extreme poverty, they gave. I'm struck because I, I know for me, and I think this is the tendency for many of us, that if we're going through a hard time, through affliction or through financial difficulty, our tendency is not to be generous. Our tendency is to protect ourselves, to hunker down and say, well, I've got to make sure I'm okay in this. But it's grace when someone in the midst of affliction and difficulty is saying, wow, I want to give. I want to be generous. You see, that is the very grace of God lived out in the body of Christ. These believers were anxious to give. Notice verse 3 and 4. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, willingly, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They gave sacrificially. It says they gave according to their means and even beyond their means, beyond what was reasonable in what they had. And notice, you know, most people, most ministries beg you for your money, right? But here's a picture of the grace of God. When God so moves in a believer's heart, they've been so filled by the grace that God has poured out on them, that God has given them life in the new covenant and the life of Jesus in us, that they are begging for the opportunity to give to others. Wow! That is the grace of God poured out in a heart. You know it's the grace of God at work in the Macedonians, Paul is saying. Now, I've had a number of folks here come to me at different times and say, where can I give? What field staff or missionary needs help? Who... Where's a hurting family in our body? And it's a wonderful picture to me of God's grace when God moves in our hearts and says, man, give me an opportunity to give. God's blessed me and I want to bless someone else. Then in verse 5, you see what's really behind this grace, this demonstration of grace, where it says, and this, not as we expected, Paul says, 
but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. I love that because I think what he's saying is that the Macedonians did this not because they had to or there was pressure or anything else, but they did it as an act of worship. They gave themselves to the Lord first and they said, and he says, and they gave themselves to us as well. They were seeking to love God and love others and out of that love, grace was poured out through them to want to bless their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And it says, Paul was surprised. I was surprised at how they did that. So in verse 6, he exhorts them. He says, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Paul says, look at the Macedonians. Look at how God poured out his grace in them, upon them, and through them. And now he says, now you've said you want to give, so now it's time to actually do that, complete this act of grace. You too, Corinthians, live a life of radical generosity. Look for opportunities to share the grace he has poured out on you. The attitude I think God wants us to have is this. Everything I have is a gift from you, Lord. You have blessed me far beyond what I deserve. In fact, what I really deserve is hell, so everything is a gift. So how do you want to use everything you've given me for your kingdom, O Lord? I appreciate this quote from Paul Hatfield in his book, The Generosity Revolution, where he writes, What if, before we made financial decisions large or small, instead of asking if we could afford it, if we asked, how will this impact our ability to be generous now and in the future? Let me read that again. What if before we made financial decisions, large or small, instead of asking if we could afford it, we asked, how will this impact our ability to be generous both now and in the future? So one good reason to live a life of radical generosity is that it demonstrates the grace of God. Secondly, Paul goes on to say we should live a life of radical generosity because it proves our love. Verse 7 and 8. Paul writes, But as you excel in everything, Corinthians, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. If you want to prove that gold is genuine, it has to be tested. They chemically analyze it to make sure it's real gold. It's the real thing and not mica, not false fool's gold. Well, Paul says, Corinthians, you've talked a good talk. You've said you want to give. You've said you're loving. And now it's time to prove your love, to prove that it's genuine. There's an implication here that's worth wrestling with, and that is he's suggesting that how do you prove that your love is real 
Well, it's by, you, by how you spend your money. You prove your love is real by how you spend your money. Jesus said your heart follows your money. <laughs> Remember where he said your treasure, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If you're depending on money and your money, wherever your money is going, that's where your heart will follow. Paul is essentially telling the Corinthians here, put your money where your mouth is. <laughs> You've said you want to be generous, but let's, let's prove our love here. Show that your love is genuine by a radical generosity, by blessing your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, by seeing everything you have as a tool to bless others. The third reason Paul gives in this passage why we should live out a radical generosity is that it imitates Jesus. This beautiful verse, verse 9. I think one of the key, most wonderful verses in all of Scripture where Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul refers to Jesus' act of radical generosity, where he is Lord of the universe, who had everything in his hands, who was co-creator, who had all the riches of heaven and earth at his disposal, gave up all of that to become one of us, to become a human in the incarnation. But even more than that, he became the lowest of humans, so to speak, who had nothing. He lived in poverty. He had nowhere to lay his head. I want to read a meditation from Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, English preacher, from the 1800s about this. And just consider what Jesus did for us. Rather than coming in material riches worthy of God, Jesus wholly embraces poverty. Stooping from the unimaginable infinity of his divinity, God takes on the limiting poverty of humanity in the incarnation. Jesus stoops to the lowest entry point of humanity, bypassing earthly riches and power, coming as a helpless child born to a young woman and an earthly father who is a backwoods carpenter. Jesus, the God of the universe, allows himself to be further bound in swaddling clothing, helpless and poor. His early life is spent on the run as a refugee in Egypt. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus came and chose to live as a refugee on the run, displaced in poverty. When he launches his public ministry, Jesus lives a life that embraces poverty. After his baptism, Jesus goes into the wilderness, living as a starving person might without food for 40 days. He lives the life of a poor itinerant preacher walking on foot for thousands of miles and often sleeping outdoors. He lives with the poor, heals the poorest of the poor, the blind, the lame, the lepers, and the possessed. He lives like the homeless, saying foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then Jesus died as a common criminal, stripped bare, beaten, and hung on a cross as he watches the soldiers gamble for his robe, his one 
material possession. You see, radical generosity means imitating Jesus, who was rich and gave it all up for us. He exhibited what might be called downward mobility. In our world, we we live for upward mobility. You know, we need a little better, a little more. We need to be progressing. But what did Jesus model for us? Downward mobility. Giving up more and more. Dying to self more and more for the sake of others. That is a picture of radical generosity. And because we've been given such grace by Jesus who has loved us so well, how can we not pass on grace to others and live a life of radical generosity? Fourth reason I see in this passage why we ought to live this kind of life, radical generosity, is that it benefits us. It benefits us, you, the giver. Verse 10 through 12, Paul writes this. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you. This blesses you, or NIV, this is best for you. Who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it, this giving. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. He says, this is best for you. It benefits you. You've wanted to give. You've talked about it. Now, I want you to experience the grace that comes when you actually give of the resources God has blessed you with. This really fits in what Jesus says when he says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That when we choose to be generous in a radical way, to bless others with what we've been given, that there is something that happens in our hearts, that there is a joy that results, a reality, an integrity about us when we pass on grace to others rather than hanging on selfishly for ourselves. When we were first married, Jeannie and I, for the first about seven years of our marriage, our average income per month was about $700 a month. We were on support. And so we depended on people giving to us. And I remember a few years into that, you know, I would give some here and there, throw a dollar or two into the offering plate or whatever, but I didn't have much, so I didn't give much. Well, we started having more kids, and yet the income stayed the same, and I really wrestled with that. And God began to lay on my heart, I want you to live out a radical generosity. And I said, I don't have anything to give. I'm barely surviving here. And the kids keep coming. I'm not sure how that happens, but it, they kept coming. <laughs> but God kept laying on my heart, no, I want you to trust me in this. Well, I wrestled with that. It was hard, but I, I sensed that God was telling me something. And, and this is not a new covenant. In the New Testament, we're not told how much to give. But for me at that point, I sensed that God was saying, like the Old Testament tithe, to give at least 10%. And I'm looking, that's 70 bucks. 
That's a lot on our income. And God was saying, look how I provided your house. We bought a house during that time. It was a fixer-upper. It was tiny. But our house payment, which included taxes and insurance, was $139 a month. And God's saying, look how I can provide for you. Will you trust me? So I said, okay, Lord. Even though the car would break down sometimes, we were struggling up and down, I didn't see how in the world it could work, but I sensed God was saying, trust me. And so we committed to that. And I will honestly say it didn't always, wasn't always perfect, but we found that rarely did we ever struggle with finances after that. It, it was just like, even though the income did not go up, seriously, Yet somehow we always had more than we had previously. I mean, God just took care of us. God wants us to learn to live a radical generosity. Notice verse 12, though. He, he says there in verse 12, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. God isn't saying that you have to give away everything so you have nothing for your own needs. Okay, God blesses you with money so that you can take care of your basic needs. But it does mean that as God has blessed you, the surplus is meant to bless others. What's the right amount to give? Well, it differs for each of us. In the New Covenant, there isn't a percentage or an amount given. But there is this challenge for you and for me. Are we living out, no matter what our income is, a radical generosity? I'm challenged by the story of John Wesley, who was the great preacher, founder of Methodism. He had a big family. He was an itinerant preacher, traveled around. And John Wesley, in the 1700s, was an Englishman, and he was receiving about 30 English pounds a year. Today's equivalent is roughly around $20,000. Well, as his income went up over the years to 60 pounds and 90 pounds and 120 pounds and 150 pounds on up to well over what would be the equivalent of well over $200,000 a year. John Wesley chose to continue to live by the 30 pounds. He continued to live by $20,000 a year, and the rest he gave away. To me, that's a great challenge. Do I feel pressured to live the American dream? I, I need to get a little nicer house and a little nicer car and a nicer this, a nicer that, and continue upgrading the furniture, etc., etc. I need better vacations. That's the American dream. I understand that, but that is not radical generosity. That God calls us to live a life of radical generosity because it blesses us, Paul says. We get to participate in the kingdom of God where God blesses us and now we get to share the grace that He's given us and bless others and find the joy that comes when it's more blessed to give than to receive. Finally, Paul gives us one more reason why we should live a life of radical generosity, and that's because it blesses the person you give to. 
It blesses the receiver. Verses 13 through 15. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness or equality, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be equality or fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Paul says what God really wants is this word he uses, equality or fairness. Now, I don't believe he's talking about forced communism here where you take from the rich, give to the poor, so everybody has the same. But what he is saying is God does something amazing in the body of Christ. This is part of his plan. He blesses some with more and he lets others live with very little so that the ones who have more will have the joy of giving to those who need it and be blessed by that. And those who are forced in need at that time can receive and experience the humility of receiving so that as needs change then there's giving but it balances out in the body of Christ in the end you see that's God's plan and it's a great blessing to those who receive because not only do they experience humility but they get their needs met through the body of Christ and he gives a quote from Exodus chapter 16 verse 18 the whole Exodus when they're in the wilderness and God provides manna for them. This strange meal they were given, this manna. And as they received the manna, they would go out and it says, those who gathered lots and some gathered a little, when they got home, they all had just what they needed. And he says, that's a picture of what I want to see in the body of Christ, that the people's needs are met and that we could live out this kind of radical generosity and bless others with what we've been given. Now, as we think about money, there's a lot of questions that are remaining unanswered this morning. How do we give? To whom shall we give? What are some giving guidelines, etc.? Well, we will talk about some of those things in the next few weeks as we continue studying chapters 8 and 9. But I think Paul begins here with the reason, for a reason. Because foundational to how we handle our money is an understanding of the incredible grace of God. Because God has blessed you so richly, spiritually, monetarily, physically, in so many ways that we don't deserve. Because God has blessed you so richly, now you get to be a participant in His grace. As the grace is poured into us, we get to overflow and bless others in our world, both believers and unbelievers, by passing on the grace that God has given to us. When we choose to live a life of radical generosity, it demonstrates the grace of God. It proves our love. It imitates Jesus. It benefits us. And it benefits others. As Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So may we be new covenant believers, Christians who are learning to live out a life of radical generosity. Let's pray.
How you have blessed us, our Lord. So far beyond all that we deserve, you've poured out your grace on us, you've given us forgiveness and life, and you've blessed us with living in this country where we do have a lot. You've blessed us with physical and monetary blessings. But Lord, we, we confess this is a struggle with, for us to know how to live in this consumer-oriented culture as believers. I pray that as we continue this study, that we would learn to be brothers and sisters to one another in a way that we live out radical generosity, that your grace might permeate this church, this community, this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.